All right, welcome everyone to another episode of the Saba NC podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Vid Prabhakaran, who is a California energy attorney, currently a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine and a chair of the energy practice. His work is focused on, a mat- on matters related to greenhouse gas reduction, rate making, safety, and procurement for a wide range of clients. Uh, Vid, I'll let you go into kind of what the energy space looks like, but thank you for, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joe. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So typically, I like to kind of start at the beginning of the story. I know undergrad was at Yale doing political science, then went to Georgetown for law school. What was, I guess, the underlying mission or ethos behind wanting to go to law school? Um, and kind of what, what's the journey that led you to the position you're in now? Yeah, so, you know, as you mentioned, I was a political science major. And I had a strange fascination with bureaucracy of all things. And, uh, you know, as a result of diving into the bureaucracy that is the federal government, I figured, you know what, I should go to law school and do something government related. And no idea what that meant, no idea what that entailed. I don't, I don't have any lawyers in my family and nor did I really consult with any lawyers before I made that decision, um, but, I decided, hey, if I'm going to do something government related, I might as well go to law school in D.C. Uh, And so found my way to Georgetown. And, you know, while I was at law school, I dabbled in a whole bunch of government related arenas. Um, I tried first off, I tried labor law uh, and worked at a a union um, that was actually dealing with some of its locals. Um, And so that was this incredibly bureaucratic, interesting uh, uh, practice, ultimately not for me. Um, Then I tried as my my summer associate position, uh, was lucky enough to uh, get hired by the uh, Miami Immigration Court, um, which was super cool, really amazing. I was literally on South Beach, it was incredible. Um, But uh, turns out I hated immigration law. Um, And so, I, you know, moved on to my 2L year and I ended up practicing um, for a law firm that did telecom law and aviation law. And I hit my sweet spot. It was this really amazing um, mix of technology and law and regulation. And that was exactly why I'd gone to law school in the first place. I, I wanted to figure out how to sort of navigate, you know, the laws and, and figure out uh, how to make things run despite, you know, all this bureaucracy all the time. So yeah, that was, that was why I went to law school. I, so I think that's super interesting because I've talked to a lot of folks who have this kind of one thread of curiosity that sparks the interest in law school. You know, I want to be a social justice attorney. I want to work at the ACLU or for me, it was sports attorney. So for someone else, it may be something else. But I think there's a tension between that idea of here's the one thing I want to do. And then in law school, you're kind of pigeonholed to pick pick something. Um, and your experience shows that you kind of had the ability to see things that you didn't like and ultimately end up somewhere where it did spark your interest. What do you do if you're, let's say you're a 1L about to go to OCI and you do have a, an interest that sparked your desire to go to law school, but a lot of your interviews are saying, okay, you, you can join our corporate practice in big law, or you can be you know, ACLU attorney here in the summer, and yeah. that be directly what you want to do. What do you do in that case? And I'm sure you've interacted. Yeah, with- I, I, I grappled with that exact question. Because also, you know, look, 1L year, you know, the, cl- the classes are largely prescribed to you. Um, they're, they're, they are not 
you know, specific in any way, right? Like you're just learning how the basics of being a lawyer. And I would encourage folks to treat their 1L summer in that same way. You know, you are, you are simply learning the basics of being a lawyer, whether, uh, whether that's as a transactional lawyer or a litigator uh, or a regulatory lawyer or a lobbying lawyer or, you know, a pure counseling lawyer, what of, what el whatever you ultimately decide to do, there are just some basic building blocks. And that 1L summer is honestly more about that than anything else. Um, and so whether you end up working for, uh, you know, an insurance defense firm or a cri on criminal matters because you're working for, you know, the public defender or, or the DA's office, or you're working on immigration matters like me, the basic lawyering skills that you learn uh, are invaluable for no matter what your path is later on. You'll have time to specialize uh, later. So don't worry about that as a 1L is what I would say. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads me to my next question. You mentioned this kind of a unique love for bureaucracy. Um, and that probably caters well to being in big law and to being into structured entities that have a step level promotion and kind of a path towards becoming a partner. Uh, I wonder more for kind of the young attorneys who may be listening, early associates who right now are you know, kind of grinding their teeth and learning the skill set. What does it take to kind of get to that next step? What are the not political hurdles, but kind of non legal issues and things that you have to tackle with in order to? progress in this space. Yeah, I mean, look, the biggest the biggest difference, right, between a sort of law firm partner role, um, whether that's big law or, or, you know, your own firm, uh, and, you know, more of the, the sort of government path or the nonprofit path, um, uh, or even sort of somehow, some, it, some, in, to some degree, the in-house path um, is client development, right? It's this, I, this need to bring in clients of your own. And that skill set is not what you go to law school for. You know, you go to law school to learn to be a good lawyer and to do the work and to do quality work. And, and look, fundamentally, you cannot be a law firm partner without doing good, high quality work. You have to actually get the job done. But there is this whole other side of running a business, and there's this whole other side of bringing in work and the networking associated with that. The you know the 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 time spent just getting to know people, that's stuff that you aren't taught in law school. And so it is stuff that you sort of either have naturally to some degree, or you get taught in a law firm environment. And so that's, that's what people need to be open to and receptive to. It's not this, you know, it's not going to golf courses and whining and dining people. It's much more than that. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's, that's the piece that I think is missing. Uh, you know, I think just from my per personal curiosity, how did you go about building those relationships? If it wasn't that TV version that we see of meeting on the golf course and having a spontaneous client, what are there tangible steps people can take to build valuable relationships? Yeah, or I mean, by organic. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, first off, it's just recognizing that your personal relationships can evolve into business relationships and that that's okay. It's something that people are somewhat uncomfortable about, right? I mean, here are friends that you've had forever in high school, in, you know, even earlier than that. I, I literally have one client of mine is an elementary school friend, hmm. you know, um, and, you know, those friends often become your best clients and just recognizing that relationships can evolve in that way and that that's, that's okay. Um, you know, in law school, um, 
uh, investing in relationships more than just broad, more than just focusing on grades, I think is really valuable. A number of my clients are law school relationships. Um, and then subsequently from that, once you once you do graduate and you're in the in the in the uh, uh, you know out in the attorney force, bar associations. I mean, my most valuable relationships in large part uh, are due to Saba and are due to uh, minority bar associations and bar associations more broadly. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that some as well, but, um, but you know, I think that's a huge, huge value uh, yeah. to creating those networks. And I think we, we can jump to that question and then circle back to some of the other ones, but, sure. you know, talking about your South Asian heritage and being a part of Saba and being in this space, I guess, two-part question. One would be, how does being South Asian affect your work and affect maybe your worldview, if it does at all? Um, and the second part would be Saba specifically and how you've used that as a networking platform and you know a, a place to meet like-minded individuals. How has it been beneficial? Yeah, let me let me answer the second question first. Um, so you know, Saba has been incredibly impactful in my career personally. Um, some of my earliest clients are directly attributable to a South Asian referral source opening the door for me so that I can make a pitch. Or in some cases, they were the people who hired me. Um, and, you know, nothing begets more clients than having done good work for existing clients. Um, their referrals are often the most valuable uh, to, to building your, your career. And I have very much benefited from South Asian attorneys that I, you know, developed uh, in my network through Saba and through Sabana in particular, telling folks that, hey, you know, there's this guy, Vid, I got to meet him through the convention or I got to meet him through the bar session stuff. He's a doer. He's somebody who actually will, you know, get things done. Can't vouch for his legal skills. Haven't worked with him on a legal basis, but I know that he's a doer and I know that he cares enough to get things done. Give him a shot. See if he's, you know, worth your time. That's been incredibly valuable. And that has only continued uh, throughout my career, and uh, and it's been incredibly valuable. In terms of um, you know your first question, it's interesting. Uh, it, it, being South Asian has impacted my career in a variety of ways. So first, you know, as an energy lawyer, a great deal of the engineers who actually work on energy matters are South Asian. And what you'll find is that that uh, in a very heavily Caucasian-dominated uh, arena, you know, with, like energy, the leadership uh, that you're often, uh, you know, your your clients are often not those South Asian engineers, but the information that is needed to get the job done, or the information that needs to be provided to a regulator, or described in a manner that is not legalese or engineering speak. Uh, is often coming from a South Asian source. And so I've, I have been using my, the skills that I've honed translating for my dad for years because, you know, a, a man with a very thick accent who, uh, who you know, uh, speaks as a, as, a, as a scientist first and as a human second has <laughs> been exactly what I've needed to be able to translate what is often very technical information to a lay audience in a in in a an administrative law judge or a or a uh, you know or another regulator, um, and so that's been incredibly useful. 
Um, and, you know, my own sort of heritage of like, you know, the, the typical sort of, I would say the typical South Asian mindset of like, keep your head down, do good work, and all things will come uh, from that. Good things will come from that. I've had to fight that. That's actually something that I've had to recognize that like, no, that actually is insufficient in a law firm practice. Mm-hmm. It is insufficient to simply do good work and keep your head down because that will not result in you bringing clients into a firm or raising, uh, you know, seeing yourself, you're seeing your stock rise at a law firm. And so I've had to fight that and, and actually think about ways to, to be a bit more visible and to bring in clients, uh, to showcase my abilities uh, in a way that uh, is sort of true to my own sort of nature. Uh, so, yeah. I, I think that last point is really interesting because there's lots of South Asian not habits and things that we take on from our upbringing that are very positive. Like, for example, deference to elders. You know, you respect your elders and you take care of folks. But in the law firm context, in the legal space, it, it might not mean, do me very well to be deferential to my business partners who might be older. And that, that's kind of the simple things that you've had to unlearn as a lawyer, I've realized. And to your point about learning how to market yourself and um, kind of go out of your way to show people, not only do I do good work, but I'm willing to you know, go out and actively pursue um, additional clients as well. So that, that's an interesting point. And it brings me back to another question about kind of just being a lawyer in general. Obviously, you know, you've had super interesting career, successful by many measures. And I think that for a young lawyer and law students, they probably look at you and wonder, how do I get to that spot? And my question for you would be, how do you balance the mental, physical health? What are the daily habits that are non-negotiables for you to kind of have a quote unquote good day? What what does that look like? Yeah, look, it's it's morphed over time. Um, You know, when I was a a junior lawyer, um, it was incredibly important for me to have the space to, um, you know, some might call it network. I was just calling it having, you know, meaningful relationships. And so that meant, you know, being able to have time to actually build friendships. I, I personally had just moved to a new city. I, I, I have no roots in San Francisco. And so when I joined, when I came out here, I knew very few people, a, a couple of, you know, friends from undergrad, a couple of people from high school, a couple of people from law school, but those, that network was incredibly precious to me and I needed to invest in that. And so, you know, carving out that time to to actually have meaningful relationships was critical. And so I was lucky enough to be at a law firm uh, at that time. Uh, It was a small boutique firm. I didn't have a a real hours requirement. And so I invested in those relationships because I was I had the space and time to do so. When I moved to Davis Wright uh, three years later, and the reason I moved was because I quickly recognized that the networks I was building and the relationships that I had would not be best serviced by a small boutique. Like I needed a big firm with all of the capabilities associated with the firm to be able to, to, you know, really be able to provide the kind of services I wanted to the network that I was building. And so I went to a big firm with an hours requirement. Um, And I realized like, okay, I'm going to be working really hard, but I still need to carve out that time to invest in relationships. And so that was a non-negotiable for me. And so I wasn't somebody who was gunning to do 2,200 hours. You know, I gunned to do 1,900 hours. That was my goal each year. And that was fine under the constructs of, of my firm's billing requirements. Um, I was still 
wells, uh, you know, at the time it was 1800, still 100 hours above, you know, sort of expectations. Uh, but because it was only 1900, I still had the ability to really invest in my relationships and, and make that a non-negotiable. Non it also, at that time, I was, I was uh, single and had no children. And so I had a little bit of time to do things like, you know, work out and, and play basketball and do those things. But honestly, for me, it was less about the physical well-being on, on doing those things. It was actually more about the social. And so it was like working out with friends, playing basketball with friends. That's really what I was investing in. It just happened to have this, you know, sort of physical uh, benefit as well. Um, I didn't really get into the mental health aspect until I had children. Um, and when I did have children, I have really recognized the importance of carving out some space and of, it's frankly just alone time um, to ensure that I have some time to uh, center myself, think about sort of uh, my values, my goals, and affirm those every morning. Um, and so I have uh, committed to doing that every morning. I wake up a little bit earlier than I would otherwise wake up. And I, you know, uh, other people sort of think of this as like a meditation sort of pra wellness practice. It's not really that. It's not like a half an hour or even an hour long practice like other people necessarily do. It's just 10 minutes. It's just 10 minutes to, to sit and, and think quietly about what I'm trying to accomplish um, more broadly than just for that day. And that that entails more than just in my practice, but also in my my parenting and you know, being a good spouse to, to my wife and, and in general, thinking about that broadly. That's had a significant impact for me. And it's something that I would, I would definitely commend to really anyone is just to carve out that little bit of space to just affirm what it is that you want to do uh, to impact the world. Yep. And I think a, a constant theme of our conversation so far has been investing in relationships. You mentioned that in law school, making friends, making relationships rather than focusing on grades. You mentioned the same thing in your early big law career, carving out time to make friendships and relationships. So I wonder, that brings me to another question that I had. Um, you were recently named as one of the best under 40 by NAPABA, National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. Um, so what does success look like for you in, in the career field currently? Is there something left for you to accomplish? How do you think about that um, mentally every day? Is there something left for me to accomplish? There's so much for me to accomplish. Are you kidding? No, look, you know, like the, the Best Under 40 Award is a cool one. Uh, and it's one I'm, I, I really appreciated the honor. Part of the reason I, I appreciated it in particular was because it measures something that is a little different than some of these other lists. Um, the Best Under 40 uh, was very much focused not only on sort of professional success, which was important, and that was an important, important category. And I, I have so many things that I still am looking forward to doing sort of professionally and, 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 and focused on uh, achieving. But it also looked at impact on the Asian American community. And that was something that is personally incredibly meaningful to me and is part of the reason, frankly, I'm, I'm sitting here speaking to you. You know, I, I know that in my position, I can have a real impact on generations, the generations to come. And I really want law students to think about that too. You know, as they are coming up, you know, it, it, is, it is part of their honor and privilege to actually talk to others who are coming up behind them to assist them and get them uh, acclimated and, and also to, you know, help empower them to, to, to achieve whatever amazing things they're going to do. Um, and so 
that best under 40 award was in part about that those efforts that I've taken you know as uh, from being a young associate to now being a partner and frankly and I did that because I had role models who did that and who did that for me uh, and so you know it was it's just frankly my own award is nothing more than a legacy of some of those who had previously been awarded similarly uh, and uh, and so you know I, I think that's I think that is really you know when you when you ask the question of what does success look like at this stage it's knowing that I've actually impacted numerous other lawyers uh, in having their own success and that I can take some small measure of pride in seeing other people's success um, so that's what it is in sort of a non sort of professional standpoint, but just sort of like success as like, what does that feel like? You know, in terms of the professional success, for me, look, I'm an energy lawyer. In my mind, the biggest, you know, uh, the, the biggest challenge that the world is facing right now is climate change. And the ability for all of us to impact our future uh, through the reduction of carbon emissions is something that I actively focus on. And I have the, again, the privilege of being able to impact in my day-to-day -day job. Uh, and so what I work on is fundamentally, in my mind, helping to change the world and save the world. And so the impact and the, the you know, what I am looking for and what is success look for me is that I am meaningfully moving the world and, you know, California as often leading the world in this respect with respect to climate change policy. That's what success is gonna look like for me. And I think it's super cool to hear you describe that because that's kind of the, the reason for creating this podcast is we know a lot of students or a lot of young lawyers typically might be nervous or apprehensive about going to a networking event, coming up to a partner like you so that hopefully they can sit in the comfort of their own home, in their car and they can hear your story and maybe they latch onto a piece of that inspiration and that drives them to find their own version of success. Down yeah, that's why this is so cool. I'm so glad you're doing this for this reason. Yeah, and I think our last two questions kind of, you, you already started to touch on it. I wanted to nerd out on energy law in this space. To be honest, I don't, I don't know a lot about this space, but just reading your background, I know you've, done, you've touched on it from every single angle of the industry, it seems like. Yeah. The first, yeah. Yeah, the first question would be, if I'm in law school right now, what are some of the skills? What, you know, what should I be reading, listening to? thinking about to develop, uh, you know, an initial interest and curiosity in this space? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, I, I think if you're in law school, the way you, you, you know, frankly, I, I would suspect that it would, we wouldn't even wait for, wait for your interest just to peak in law school. I bet you have already had this interest in undergrad. Um, it is so topical right now. I've got high school students contacting me. I've got a middle school students contacting me. Um, you know, South Asian students who are like, hey, I don't really know anybody in the, you know, sort of energy climate change related space. I have these questions, thought you might know something about this. You're the only South Asian I know I see in this in this arena. Um, and that's so cool uh, because it's it is this new generation that's so focused on climate change and the impacts, you know, the, the sort of Greta Thornburgs of the world. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I do think that the easiest way to get acclimated to this arena is just to read the news. There's just so much going on in this space right now, and it's all topical, uh, and it's all directly relevant to what I do as an energy lawyer now. Um, so that's what I would just recommend is just, you know, pay attention to the news and focus on this, this area. And there's plenty of, there's plenty <laughs> uh, out there. 
Yep, and your your bio, you know, the at the law firm website states that you kind of sit at the inter intersection of energy innovation, well-meaning regulation, and where politics collide. Yeah. Um, and I think it really highlights there's lots of different angles to this field. There are the tech companies, maybe like a Tesla or a solar panel company. Yeah. But there's also a need for legislation and other things to interplay with that to really get to where we want to go. What does you know, I, I described it as a utopia look like in 10 to 15 years. Does that look like self-driving cars and renewable resources? Or are there other things that we should be focusing on as a society as well that maybe we don't talk about as much? Yeah, so I, you know, the answer is almost always yes when somebody says, does, will it include this? Um, so will it include autonomous vehicles? Yes, you know, it will include autonomous vehicles that are uh, electric vehicles. Um, and that largely replace internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, so yes, you know, will it include, um, you know, uh, uh, distributed generation, you know, solar on your roof, uh, you know, maybe you have a, a, a Tesla power wall in your garage. Uh, yes, you know, uh, we're actually talking about right now having um, new uh, uh, roofing that will itself be solar generating. Um, you know, there's just, just so much cool technology out there. And there's the other smaller things that you don't think about, but that are really, really meaningful. You know, for example, uh, most people are now just putting in Nest thermostats and using all these sort of smart home elect uh, electric apps. You know, people want to you know call out to to Google or to 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 uh, uh, Alexa and say like, you know, like I want my lights to go off. It's like a Star Trek thing, you know, and like that's happening. That's not a, that's not science fiction. That's people have that ability right now. All of those things are going to be meaningful con contributors because there are companies like OwnConnect, for example, that will aggregate all of these devices across thousands of homes and turn things down when there is an emergency or there is a need to reduce energy consumption. Yeah. Um, and that can have a certain, you know, it is as beneficial to the planet to just turn off some of the, the power plants that, you know, that, that exist there right now, as it is to like find clean renewable generation sources. Um, so you have these conservation measures too. There's just so much cool stuff. And it's, it's the, the problem is that all this cool stuff runs up against energy laws that are antiquated and don't, you know, haven't been designed for the moment. Right. And so I get to spend my time helping advise companies as to those um, conflicts and how to resolve them, um, whether that's through legislation, whether that's through lobbying, whether that's through regulatory means, complaints, litigation, what have you. That's my day to day. Um, and that's where politics layers in on top of all of this, because, well, it's great for most politicians these days to be on board with sort of the green revolution one way or the other. The reality is that you still need to keep the lights on and you need to do that cheaply. Uh, and, you know, for those of us in California, we're seeing it in our bills, right? Like they've doubled uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, and that's meaningfully hitting people in the pocketbook. And a lot of that is climate change related, right? That's fires, that's wildfires. That, that's really part, mainly what's driving much of these increases. Um, and so, you know, we need to invest in climate change solutions associated with wildfires 
to reduce our long-term sort of energy costs. So I've talked to, uh, you know, you can see, I could talk for hours on, on this topic. I was going to say, I wish our audience, you know, probably be listening to this in, in a little bit. I wish they could see how excited your facial expression and smile was, because you know, that makes me excited as a young lawyer to see someone passionate about what they do and really find meaning. And it seems like you're endlessly curious about this subject, which is something to highlight for young lawyers and law students, that the best way to find success is you know, to continue to be curious and continue to build up your depth of knowledge in this space. Um, we're starting a new trend on our podcast where the final question is going to be a favorite book of our uh, of our guest in order to kind of increase our own knowledge and overall literacy of the Saba listeners. Any books that you've recently read that you'd highly recommend um, young law students or anyone listening to this to take on? Yeah, you know, I'm actually going to pull up my Kindle right now while we're talking because I, I, I have, I've been asked this question about three different times. And yet, for whatever reason, I cannot, for the life of me, remember the name of this book. Um, uh, and so I'm going to pull it up right now because it is worth um, um, time. I, and I will mention a different book as well while I find the, the, the primary book. There's a book called Backable um, by Sunil Gupta that I think is a, is a worth a read for uh, any uh, anyone. It's not a lawyer specific, but the idea is like, how do you make yourself backable? And it's meant for sort of the startup world and the sort of, you know, people who are like making pitches in the startup arena. But there's an aspect of that where you each each of us as lawyers are are essentially creating businesses in and of ourselves um, when you're in a big firm. You know, you are a a uh, a revenue generator. And so that is ultimately a business plan that someone has decided to support and invest in. And so some of those concepts I thought were, were really relevant. But the book that I would recommend uh, and commend to folks, there's a book called The New Map. Um, and it's uh, it's The New Map, Energy, Climate, and uh, 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 and The Clash of Nations. It's a fascinating introduction into the world of energy. Um, and it's it's it, it takes you out of the very narrow confines of like, the, you know, in my case, like, San Francisco or California specific energy politics and puts you on the macro level of like the world and dealing with oil uh, and how that and natural gas now and how that has driven conflicts across among nations forever and continues to. Uh, and it really reminds you of how deeply impactful our need for energy has impacted global politics. It's super fascinating. Well, that's awesome. So I'm going to be making some uh, Kindle purchases this afternoon. So for our listeners, I'll put both of the books in the link. There were The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations by Daniel Jurgen, and also Backable, The Surprising Truth Behind What Makes People Take a Chance on You by Sunil Gupta. So thank you, sir, for your time today. That was, that was my last question. For our listeners, you can find all of our episodes on the southasianbar.org. We'll be having at least three new episodes by the end of the month. So please feel free to check it out. And if you're a current lawyer, we'd love to have you as a guest. Feel free to reach out. And thank, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And, and please, for anyone listening, feel free to contact me. I love to have conversations about what it, what it, what it takes to, to, get, to uh, get to a big law firm and to succeed at a big law firm. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much.